Coming up next, Upstate's HealthLink on Air. On this week's program, we'll talk about how to raise children who resist bullying behavior. As a parent, you want to establish that communication with your child so that they feel comfortable telling you. You also want to um, be aware of what's happening in your school. Then, we'll hear about the value of reading and some book suggestions from a pediatrician. Having a book as a go-between, um, being able to read something together and then say, how did you feel about what we just read? Or look what that character was going through. And we'll explore how one medical school is working to attract and retain students of color. Few of us got together and I decided to write to underrepresented minority alumni and to others that value diversity. All that, a checkup from the neck up, and a selection from our Healing Muse coming up right after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore a variety of health and medical issues from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. On this week's show, We'll hear from a pediatrician with some children's reading suggestions. Then, we'll look at one way a medical school is helping to attract and retain students of color. But first, how we can raise children who resist bullying behavior. A considerable number of children are teased or threatened, excluded or harassed, even assaulted as the victims of bullying. Experts estimate that almost all children at some point will experience bullying behavior either as a victim, as the bully, or as an observer. Here to talk about this issue is pediatrician Ann Botash. She's a professor of pediatrics at Upstate, the director of the Child Abuse Referral and Evaluation Program, and the medical director for McMahon-Ryan Child Advocacy Center. Welcome, Dr. Botash. Thank you. Thank you very much for inviting me. <laughs> well, I've seen references to a study from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention in 2013 that showed a third of middle school students and 20% of high schoolers report having been bullied on school property. Um, and I know many schools have seen bullying as an issue in recent years, and they've taken some steps to try to address that. Um, do you have any sense for whether things are getting better about this? Well, there, I haven't seen any really recent uh, literature to support uh, an improvement, and I think that it would be hard to study an improvement at, at this point because so much of bullying now has turned into cyberbullying, and that's a new and you know change since those studies were done. Right. So I think it's really hard to to say you know what the numbers are. I my opinion is that we're still around. 20 to 30 percent of kids and that's just based on you know right it seems like it's it's a lot it's it's many kids not not consistently bullied but it is many kids who have either experienced it or seen someone bullied that number even goes higher if, if they're a witness okay well it seems like people might think they know what bullying is but there's a real definition for what bullying is right Yes, uh, most of the schools use the always definition, uh, which has three pieces to it. One piece is that it is an aggressive behavior, and you can define that really however you want. Online, it means one thing to be aggressive, and in person, it means something else, more physical aggression. Sure. The second is that it's a repeated behavior, and I think this is a really critical part to the to the definition. It's not just bad behavior on the part of a person who you know, bullies willy-nilly everyone. This is this is 
bullying is really a repeated targeted behavior targeted. to a specific person or type of person. Um, and usually as the victim, it's a person that repeated um, bullying. And then um, usually there's there to make the definition complete, there would be a power imbalance. So one person may be physically bigger or maybe, mm. you know, more um, superior in some way. Maybe they're in fifth grade and the other person's in fourth grade or okay. something like that. So or online, you, there can be a power imbalance because the other person is anonymous. So that creates a power imbalance. If you don't know who it is, you have this oh, good um, point. You know, sense of you're, you're, you're not able to do be. anything. Right. Well, you've mentioned that cyberbullying, and that's something that's new to this generation of children. I mean, the parents of these children didn't have social media when they were growing up. Um, so this is kind of a new phenomenon. How big of a problem is it? I, I think it's a pretty big problem. We've seen a number of kids in our child abuse clinic who have been bullied subsequent to disclosing about their abuse through social media. Um, I think, you know, there I've learned quite a bit about what's out there in terms of apps and sites and things that I really don't want to know about <laughs> that are available to our 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 patients and our children and our, our students. And I think, you know, they keep changing. So we have to keep up with what what's new and what our children can access. And that's really hard for parents because we're really busy. And the last thing we really want to do is sit down and analyze the web, <laughs> what's right. happening on the web. Right. Or figure out apps and which apps are being Yeah, used and how for... do you block this app and that, that app? And, you know, can you block all the apps? Um, and even just, you know, I've had children who really know a lot more about using their phone than, I mean, most children actually do, than their parents. And so how do you keep children safe when you right. really don't necessarily have that knowledge to do that? Yeah, that's that's tricky. I, any advice you have for parents on what they can do? I, I mean, some parents set limits on the use of social media, um, different hours, you know, the, not to take the phone to bed, that sort of thing. Yeah, I, I think I think a lot of the same advice that we give to parents for, you know, regular bullying, <laughs> not cyberbullying, fits also for um, okay. bullying online. And you know, the the things that you want you really have to do, um, you have to know what your child's doing online. You have to. So, um, if you can protect, if you can learn the technology so that you can protect your children from getting people coming t to find them online that are perpetrators, mm -hmm. that would be the first step, mm -hmm. you know, okay. the big step. But then, you know, other children, how do, how do you keep them from being bullied by other children on something as simple as Facebook? And you really can't. What you can do is you can talk to your child about what that's like or what that feels like. Or, um, you know, if they, if they, uh, if you ask the questions about bullying, you're likely to get the answer being no, there's not many bullying happening. But if you ask a question about behaviors, you know, is, is anybody blocking you on Facebook? Mm. Or um, do you ever feel uncomfortable when you read something online? And you'd be surprised. Kids will tell you those kinds of things. So you have to think of the possible behaviors that you might, that they might be witnessing and ask a more direct question in that way. And it's the same with, with real life. You know, you, you want to ask whether the child's being bullied on the school bus. You don't ask, are you being bullied on the school bus? 
you ask, how was the bus ride? Are you, you know, who did you sit with? Yeah, who did you sit with? Who's your friend? And, you know, what, um, are you afraid of anything? That's simple as that. Well, that's good advice. Well, you're listening to Upstate's Health Link on Air. We're talking about bullying with pediatrician Ann Botash. Um, Well, I guess what I wanted to know is, generally, what's your advice for parents in terms of raising children who are resistant to bullying? Is there a secret recipe? So there's no, no, (laughs) I wish there was. I think their secret is to raise your children how you would raise them, be supportive of them, um, try to be in their lives, to know what's going on in the neighborhood, what they're doing online, give them the tools they need to be able to have um, good social skills, you know, communication with other people, being confident. Um, the kids that get bullied, you know, as a parent, you might think about the risk factors for your children. So if you have mm. a child who needs to go to the nurse's office to take medication, that might be something that makes them stand out and be different in the class. Not that being different is bad, but those kinds of things are the things that bullies look for. Zero in on Yeah. It. So, you know, if your child has a, a, a feature, a physical feature that might make them stand out, um, maybe it's uh, they just got braces and they feel bad about it it could be something simple like that i would hate to think that kids would be bullied over braces though like every kid seems to have braces anymore um but they might have um not have braces and have an overbite or might be overweight or uh, might have a gender identity um Mm. that might result in um in middle school or in high school and that being a risk for being bullied. So a lot of the risk factors are really the risk factors um, also uh, for abuse. You know, you wouldn't blame a child for being abused. It's really the environment that they're in, um, their um, comfort with telling someone um, when something is happening. So as a parent, you want to establish that communication with your child so that they feel comfortable telling you. You also want to um, be aware of what's happening in your school to keep a supportive environment. And those are usually positive types of um, activities in schools. You you can't, you know, you can punish kids for bullying, but that doesn't necessarily prevent the bullying. It's really um, teaching kids compassion and teaching kids, you know, what they need to do to be supportive of one another. With, With children, you need to also be aware that even being a bystander and watching bullying is, is a, um, a mental health risk for kids. So being oh. the bully, being a bystander, and being bullied, all three of those are, are uh, bad for you. <laughs> well, well some, I mean, if a, if a child is being bullied, they hopefully would say something to the parent, but they may not. Are there other clues um, that would tip a parent off that they need to inquire? Um, so they might be, um, grades might be falling. Uh, they might show fear. Um, you might see bruises. I mean, it could be oh, physical okay. um, bullying. Typically, though, it isn't, um, especially with girls. Girls tend to bully in, like, the mean girl kind of mean way. <laughs> like, everybody like, knows that from yeah. the movie. But um, girls can be more cliquish and just the kinds of shunning that happen happens with girls. Um, and um, that also happens online, um, being blocked from uh, being unfriended, those kinds of things are, are, are shunning um, in some cases. Sometimes people just want their privacy, but sometimes that it is really meant to be uh, something that hurts someone. 
So, you know, how do you know those things are happening? You don't always. And uh, that's, that's the part that as a parent is kind of frightening. You really want to right. know what's happening in your child's life about everything. And so bullying would be something that you could open the conversation. Well, what did you mean when you said just being a bystander um, can be a, a problem as well? Uh, someone, you know, so, witnessing. So if you witness, um, you know, a, a group of people beating up on someone mm -hmm. or, um, I, you know, I, I have a memory from fourth grade of a girl who was brand new, new kid in class, who all the other girls stood around and lifted up her skirt and teased her. And, you know, that was fourth grade, but I still right. remember it wow. because I didn't do anything. I just watched it because I didn't know what to do. So helping your kids to have some sense of control over those situations, I think, is important. So being able to tell someone confidentially so that it doesn't come back with retaliation against right. your son or daughter, that's also important because bullies do retaliate. <laughs> Um, so all those things are, are of concern. That's why bully, bullied, bully victims often don't tell because they're afraid of the retaliation. And so having a, an environment where um, they're protected from that retaliation. And sometimes the victim is the one who ends up having to change classes or something like that. Right, and right. that's actually, you know, hard for a child who's been bullied. Might, sometimes it's the only answer, but it seems like it's... Um, just further um, bullying, really, because they, they're the one who's punished, in a sense. So right. those, those kinds of things are all discussions that have to happen in the school set setting if, if bullying is happening in the school. Um, but again, many times that's not what we're seeing. We're seeing it happening online. So parents might not know necessarily unless their child tells them that they're being bullied or that they're seeing other kids being bullied, but how would a parent know if their child is the one who's doing the bullying? Well, similarly, um, you might not know um, because your child is the the one who's the most popular or, you know, doing well in everything. And um, you really, as a parent, don't want to believe that as of your own child. So um, I think that observation, um, really listening when other children say something to their parents and then it comes back to you try to take that seriously that's really yeah. hard to do um i think you know just the answer to all these questions is having a supportive environment to being available to your kids emotionally um making it uh, a conversation that you have at the dinner table not about using the words bullying or have you seen bullying today but actually about what happened today what at happened? school and you know what what they're doing um, what they've seen and the bystander story is a great uh, tool to help people to talk about bullying oh you saw this well what would you do or you know that kind of thing well I wish we had more time to talk about this it's a very good topic but I want to thank you for coming in we've been talking to Ann Botash a professor of pediatrics at Upstate and you've been listening to HealthLink on Air tuned. Next, we'll hear about books a pediatrician recommends for young readers on Upstate's HealthLink on Air.
Welcome to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith. Reading is a skill taught in school, but experts say the ritual of reading is best begun in infancy. Babies can enjoy and benefit from having books read aloud to them, and that sets the stage for what can be a continued ritual through childhood and adulthood. Why is that important? Dr. Jacqueline Siskin, a pediatrician at Upstate, is here to talk about how books can be a tool for parents to use to broach difficult subjects with their children. Welcome, Dr. Siskin. It's great to be here. Thank you. Thanks for coming back. Well, let's start with how parents or guardians can begin this ritual of reading. Um, some people might wonder why it's important to read to a baby who can't, who can barely crawl, let alone read. So what are the benefits for the baby and the parent? I think that reading to a baby is a great way to establish a bond between the child and the caregiver. Um, most of the time, a baby doesn't sit up on their own, so the baby's on your lap, you're kind of cuddling. And most of the books written for children in that age group are very rhythmic. There's a lot of rhyme to them. There's sort of like a, a sing-song pattern to your voice as you read, and that can be very soothing and entertaining to a baby. And the books that I'm talking about in this type of category are the ones that four or eight or 12 years later, you can still like repeat. You know, So things like the Sandra Boynton books where there's a lot of rhyming, you know, a cow says moo, a sheep says ba, three little pigs say la la la. And my oldest is memorize seven. Memorize it. I can still say that one by heart. Um, Pat the Bunny is another mm -hmm. one where there's touching and feeling, or, or I think most of us know Goodnight Moon, that sort of rhythmic, soothing pattern. And so not only is it a time to sit with your child and cuddle and have them engage in something where it's just one-on-one -on -one time with you and your child, but it's also setting the stage so that they feel like reading is part of a pattern so as they get older, it becomes okay. part of their routine. Well, as they get into school, you know, school ends up, there's a lot of reading with homework and that sort of thing. Um, is it important for them to also read for pleasure? I think so. I, I mean, you're talking to a reader, so I think reading is one of the most <laughs> relaxing things a person can do. But I also think it's important for them to realize that sometimes the, the work of school, which is important, but for some kids can feel like drudgery um, right. or can be very right. difficult, is that there's a whole world of pleasurable reading out there that books can be funny, that books can be engaging, that books can teach you another point of view. And uh, don't get me wrong, I think elementary and middle school teachers do a great job of incorporating those funny, engaging books. Um, but I think there is some excitement in discovering a book on your own that you're not reading you for school, choose, that, that you, you choose. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And that is also going to help uh, reading skills and decoding skills at home if you're into a book and you come across a tricky word either sounding it out or asking for help as to what that word means, um, really creates a sense of independence in a reader. Good. Now, when we talk about reading, does that is that limited to just books, or should you include magazines, newspapers, other uh, graphic novels, things like that? Yeah, I think that, um, there's certainly a question of what's age appropriate when we talk about magazines, okay. newspapers, and graphic novels. Um, certainly for upper-level middle schoolers and teenagers reading the newspaper or um, current magazines and being aware of what's going on in the world is important. A lot of parents perhaps don't want their elementary school kids seeing what's going on in the newspaper right. unfiltered. Right. Um, but graphic novels and uh, magazines, you know, for example, there are some great young children literary magazines. Um, Highlights has been around forever. It's still around. It's still right? around. Um, there's something called Cricket, and Cricket has younger children spinoffs like Ladybug uh, and Babybug. And those are short stories. It's very much like getting a, a literary magazine, like The New Yorker, um, but for kids. And so they're short stories and poems and things like that. 
Um, and those are a great way for a kid to get excited about getting mail and also be exposed to a lot of good literature. National Geographic used to have a, a version for kids. I don't know if they still yeah, do. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Consumer Reports at one point had a, a kid's spinoff called Zillions that you can still oh, wow. do online but not in print anymore. Um, so there's lots of different ways for kids to read the way that they see their parents reading. Well, and that's, I was going to ask you, what's the best way for parents to raise children who read? And you're sort of alluding to that. Yeah. As pediatricians, we talk about modeling behavior for your kids all the time. If you want your child to wash their hands after they go to the bathroom, they should see you washing your hands after you go to the bathroom. If you want your kids to be safe drivers, they should see you being a safe driver. If you want your child to be a reader, they should catch you reading too. Um, They should see books around the house or newspapers or magazines around the house. Um, you should take them to the library, read with them, um, engage them in saying, I'm going to read this book and maybe we could read it together. Um, and I think that's a great way to raise someone who thinks that reading is important. And most of the libraries in the area have a variety of programs to attract young read- readers of all ages. Absolutely. But- and I'm so glad you brought up the libraries because a lot of times my patients will tell me that um, they don't have a lot of books in the house because they can't afford them. And books... Uh, for some, certainly can be viewed as a luxury, but anyone can get a book for free at the library. Mm-hmm. And particularly in Onondaga County, we have such a wonderful library system with um, librarians who are so eager to help you locate the book that's just right for you and your child. And it's a great way not only to access books, but to um, use all the programming that they have. They have free story times. They have things for teens. They do great programming over school vacations. Um, So it's a great way to access more books. Well, and too, to be able to bring your child in there and tell them they can pick out on their own, you know, and they can go home with seven or eight books. Absolutely. I mean, to walk out with an armload of books like that and know that these are yours for three weeks and all you have to do is not write in them, rip the pages out and get them sticky and then bring them back is... Is yeah, a joy. It's pretty cool. Yeah, I have to say, my son um, got his library card over the weekend, and it was like he was so proud. But I also got all <laughs> choked up. Um, but he he wore it around his neck on a lantern. He looked like this is my first adult thing, and he said, "You know, I'm responsible for these books now." He was very yes. excited about it. So I think um, I think it's a great way to expose your child to books. Well, we're talking with pediatrician Jacqueline Siskin uh, from Upstate about reading um, on Upstate's Health Link on Air program. Well, um, let's talk now about how books can be used as a tool to broach difficult subjects. Um, How do you envision uh, using books for a a parent using books to broach a difficult subject with a child? I think there are so many things that a parent might feel uncomfortable just talking to their child about. And having a book as a go-between, being able to read something together and then say, how did you feel about what we just read? Or look what that character was going through. Is a, a way to diffuse what could be a difficult discussion. A lot of parents ask me as their children start entering the 10, 11, 12 age group, you know, is there a book that we can talk about puberty? I don't want to talk about this on my own. And so yeah. there's some yeah. great books out there. Um, one is called uh, What is Happening to My Body. Another one is called Who Has What, which talks about different body parts. Um, there's a fantastic book called The Care and Keeping of You that's in the American Girls Collection uh, that does focus just on female puberty, but it's a, a great book that sort of takes the onus off the parent, and, and you can talk about it. Um, but also there are some some difficult subjects that parents sometimes don't know how to explain. For example, um, kids that feel different. You know, a, a child perhaps comes home and says, oh, there's someone in my classroom who... Um, 
looks different for me or speaks differently for me. Perhaps there's a child in the classroom with special needs. And there's some great books to talk about how we're all different. Um, one of them that I love is called Not Your Typical Dragon. It's by Dan Barrell. And this is a book about a dragon who does not uh, breathe smoke and fire. And his family's really upset about it. And his classmates are really upset about it because he's just so different. You know, they call him weird. Why can't he do everything else that everyone can do? Um, and yet what comes out of his mouth in all these different situations is exactly appropriate for the need. So they take him to the doctor to see why he can't breathe smoke and fire. And when he opens his mouth, Band-Aids come out. Um, and in another situation, he opens his mouth at a party and, and whipped cream and balloons comes out and everyone's so excited. And at the end of the book, there's a, a fire. And when he opens his mouth to roar and make smoke and fire like everyone else, water comes out and it puts out the fire and saves the day and everyone realizes you know he's different but he has a special skill that he can provide and I think that that's a great way of looking at a a different perspective without sitting down and having a child read you know everybody is different and here's why it just puts it in a different context um, which is kind of fun there's another book that I love in this category and it's called Red a Crayon Story by Michael Hall and this is a story about a blue crayon that is wrapped in a red wrapper And because he's wrapped in a red wrapper, everyone thinks he's red, and he's told he's red. And in school, he can't draw red strawberries, and he can't draw a fire truck. And, you know, as he draws a traffic light, he gets very frustrated. Orange comes over to play. I'm sorry, yellow comes over to play, and they're going to draw an orange, but instead they end up drawing this weird green thing. (laughs) And um, finally, one day, someone asks if he can help him draw an ocean, and he just says very flatly, you know, I can't because I'm red. And she says, well, why don't you try? And he draws an ocean, and it's gorgeous. And the next page is him just celebrating, I'm blue. <laughs> and everyone realizes, oh, he's blue. He's been in a red wrapper the whole sweet. time, but he's blue. And it's just a great way to celebrate you know, the differences all of us have, regardless of what we look like. So I love that book. I recommend it to almost everybody. And, is that, and that's for elementary age? Yeah, or, I mean, it's yeah. a picture book. It's... Mm. Um, It's one of my favorites, but it's really just a picture book, and it's written, uh, there's perhaps only 10 words per page, and it really gets the message across. Very neat. Yeah. Well, you were uh, were also mentioning a book that's um, being made into a motion picture. Yeah, so there's a book called Wonder that is um, becoming almost mandatory reading for both fifth and sixth graders in our area. And it's a book about a child whose face looks very different from anyone else. He's got a genetic syndrome, so his eyes, his mouth, everything is dysmorphic. And yet, he is um, as intelligent, if not more intelligent, than a lot of his peers in school. Mm. And he gets put into a, a new school for gifted kids and has to go through making friends and doing all the sort of angsty middle school things, looking as different as he does. And it's really a celebration of him and what he can do. And it's not only a fantastic book, but I think it's going to be a great movie. And so what a nice way to say to your child, let's read this book together and then go see the movie And then together. go see the movie. Absolutely. Exactly. exactly. Well, let's. Uh, what about um, series of books or, or books for advancing readers, kids that are getting older and sort of wanting to read on their own? Yeah, do absolutely. Do you have some favorites? I think that... Um, Kids, as they get older, wanting to read on their own is great. And especially if you've had a child where, you know, if you're listening to this now and you've got a three-year-old and you start employing some of these strategies, maybe you'll get a teenager who wants to read on their own. But if you have a teenager now that's not that interested in reading, finding a series that's right for them is a great way to get them hooked on reading because they can read the first book, be interested in it, want to find out what happens to the character Mm. in the next one, and then all of a sudden you've got a reader on your hands. Um, 
there are some classic books from when I was a kid that I think still hold up because they teach about resilience and they um, harken back to a different time. I love when I read my kids' books where there were no cell phones and you couldn't text <laughs> and, you know, there'll be a runaway and my son will say, well, why didn't they just call on the cell phone? Like, because there wasn't one. So I think that books like uh, the Boxcar Children series um, mm. by Gertrude Warner or Little House on the Prairie by Laura Ingalls Wilder, these are Those classics. Are still, yes. And they yes. still hold up. Um, the books by Roald Dahl, James and the Giant Peach, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, Matilda, uh, the BFG. I mean, those are great books. And a lot of kids enjoy them because in every single one of those books, the adults are terrible and the kids are the heroes. And that's just fun to read. Um, Harry Potter is a great series that got a lot of kids really into reading right. in the late 90s. Right. And now, um, again, you could read the book and see the movie. I actually haven't seen any of the Harry Potter movies because I liked the book so the much I didn't want it to change my view. Um, but for some kids, being able to do both activities with their parents, if they're not that into reading, might be a great way to lead them into reading oh, good point. more. Good point. You've given us some good titles to get started here, yeah. and we don't have time to go through all of them, but we are going to put a list that you've put together on our website, healthlinkonair.org, yep. um, so people can go there, and they can also go to the library and ask for suggestions from the librarians. Absolutely, and I'm also going to link to the website a, a bunch of other websites where you can have um, reviews of Perfect. books that are written by teens and kids and are sort of vetted out by um, teachers. Well, that's good to know. Great. Well, thank you so much for being here. We've been talking with upstate pediatrician Jacqueline Siskin, and you've been listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. Hi, I'm psychologist Dr. Rich O'Neill with this week's checkup from the neck up Bad me, bad you, or a useful question. Well, folks, two days ago, I was at an intense meeting with a bunch of colleagues about a tough issue for us. At one point, someone got provocative to me, and I said something I regret to her, who I usually really like overall. But at that moment, I was instantly steamed and out it popped with no real warning. And then others piped up and piled on. Do I wish I could take my piece back? You betcha. But can't. So now what? Well, first I've been paying attention to what I've been thinking since. Notice I've been getting down on myself, blaming myself, feeling bad about myself. Bad rich, you should be ashamed. Then I ask myself, is blaming myself useful? Hmm, well, other than that little bit that's useful for taking responsibility and apologies, apologizing to my friend and colleagues for my part, new no, just makes me feel bad about myself. So, I stopped blaming me, watched my thinking and feeling to see what happened. And, while well, I felt better about myself... <laughs> I found a good chunk of me blaming my friend with, well, she started it, etc., etc., etc. So I asked myself, is blaming her useful? Well, yes, useful helping me feel self-righteous and superior, which does feel a lot better than blaming me, but ultimately, no. It just keeps a bad moment going. So stop that and watched again what happened to my thinking and feeling. 
and surprise. I discovered wonder, curiosity about the problem that got me and all us usually level-headed people spouting off. What was it about this topic under discussion that was so emotionally intense for our group that we avoided it and our feelings about it by spouting rather than listening and problem-solving? I don't know yet, but now I'm planning for our next meeting and what I, and hopefully we, can do differently. Be more patient. Deep breath, deep breath with the lurking frustration over our differences here. And instead of using that energy, that frustrated energy, to blame me or blame you, use it to listen, understand each other, and just maybe solve the problem instead. Good luck to us. I'm Dr. Rich, a work in progress, O'Neill. Thanks for tuning in. Coming up next, the Sarah Logan Frazier Scholarship. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. Listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air, I'm your host, Amber Smith. Today we'll meet a second-year medical student who is the recipient of a special scholarship at Upstate that is named after Sarah Logan Frazier, one of the nation's first African-American women physicians. We'll also hear from one of the men who helped establish that scholarship, Dr. Bruce Simmons, who recently retired from Upstate. Welcome, Dr. Simmons, and welcome, James Osei Sarpon. Glad to be here. Thanks. Thanks for being here. So, uh, James, you're in your second year of medical school here at Upstate. Um, Why did you decide that you wanted to come to medical school and become a doctor? Well, the for me, I think the first thing was it it was coupled by a couple by a couple things. The first thing was I knew that I had an aptitude for for the sciences. Um, It felt like when I was younger, it was the only thing I was good at, and I was really good at asking questions. Um, Usually, for me, when I would ask questions there would be these very well thought out, but they would be long ended. My teacher would tell me, please, could you just get to the, just get to the point? But I just wanted to learn more. Um, and I felt that that would be a good route for me to go in. Um, when I was, as I started experiencing more, going through a lot of different medical experiences, I realized that um, with helping people and this knowledge base, I could use both together in order to actually make a difference. Neat. And that's what brought me to medicine. So, and you, um, you are from the Bronx. That's where you were in high school. Yeah, I went okay. to. Um, I grew up in the Bronx all my life. I uh, went to Jane Addams High School, um, in the Bronx, and then I went to SU for undergrad. Neat. Yeah. And then applied to Upstate. Yep. Then okay. I applied to Upstate, and um, see, so it seemed as if it's you know it was right across the street. <laughs> um, a lot of my experiences, um, especially my medical and clinical experiences, came at Upstate, and so I was able to meet a lot of um great individuals like Dr. Simmons, who were able to mentor me and provide me that opportunity um, to be here. Who's also a graduate? Of I State. am. Mm-hmm. Class of 1979. Okay. Very neat. Now, um, 
were you surprised to be nominated for the Sarah Logan Frazier scholarship? No, so I, I wasn't surprised um, to be nominated. I was only I was surprised that I would be selected. Okay. You know, you always never think that um, they they you you know that you'd be the top of the line candidate for for anything. But you just go for your bets and see see what's there for you. So I was very excited when I when I heard I won the scholarship. Well, Dr. Simmons, why don't you tell us a little about the legacy of Sarah Logan Frazier and how it relates to Upstate um, and the scholarship that bears her name. Now, she earned her medical degree in 1876 from what was Syracuse University College of Medicine, which was a predecessor to what is now Correct. Upstate Medical and University. we've kind of gone through three different versions of our title since right. then, but now Upstate Medical University. Now, Sarah Logan Frazier was born in 1850, which, as it turns out, was a hundred years before I was born, <laughs> which, which uh, is interesting. But, uh, you know, she her, her father was uh, Reverend Jermaine Wesley Logan, and uh, he was uh, actually a self-emancipated slave and became a reverend uh, or a bishop in the African Episcopal, Episcopal Methodist Church here in Syracuse and had actually had a, a school for African-American youth. In his home, huh? Okay. His wife was uh, was also uh, the daughter of abolitionists, and as it turned out, the uh, the uh, the Logan home was a station in the Underground Railroad. Okay. And along with Frederick Douglass and Harriet Tubman, uh, th that that group helped to uh, to uh, uh, allow about fifteen hundred slaves to move wow. to to Canada. Uh, during that period of time. So she lived in a very interesting time with a lot going on in her household. Uh, but unfortunately, her, her mother passed away uh, at an early age. Then her father passed away uh, also in about 1867. And, you know, at some point she decided to to go into medicine. And I think the, the, uh, the real uh, factor or the, the, the event that, got, that drove her towards that was uh, seeing an injured young boy who was pinned under the wheel of a wagon and no one could help and she didn't feel that she could help. Mm. So she eventually uh, uh, prepared herself for medical school with the help of a number of other people. And being that our medical school was very close to where she lived, in fact, the Logan family lived right on East Genesee Street, now where the uh, Rite Aid store is oh, really? on East Genesee okay. Street. And uh, so very close by, and so she started in, uh, in medical school uh, in uh, 1873 and uh, was actually ended up graduating from here and was the first African-American uh, to actually graduate, male or female. From upstate. From upstate, and uh, was uh, uh, thought to be about the, f the fourth African-American female in the United States to huh. graduate from medical school. Very neat. Very neat. So, you know, so she was uh, someone that we kind of celebrate her, her, her time here at Upstate and her career as a physician. So how did the scholarship come about? Well, you know, this first, you know, Sarah Logan Frazier had some real qualities that needed to be, you know, to, to be continued and to be, you know, to uh, be recognized. And, you know, one of the things that she said, you know, as she graduated, and I'll just, you know, read a quote here. My home and family have been a beacon of light to the way of, for the poor, 
oppressed and hunted of my race. So this was ju after the Civil War. Uh, she went on to say, the time has passed for the need of shelter, but God knows we need to build strong and healthy bodies. To have those of my race come to me for aid and for me to be able to give it will be all the heaven I want. Mm -hmm. So that she, even, you know, leaving medical school, she had a mission. And so when, you know, when the scholarship came about, it actually, uh, there was a kind of a transition to the scholarship. We actually sent out uh, requests to uh, alumni uh, at the time of her 150th uh, anniversary of her birth. Okay. Uh, and uh, that was in uh, 2000. And uh, to uh, to uh, uh, support the commission of a of a portrait that you know hangs in our institution, and so we actually had money that came in for that, and some money left over. But in two thousand three, uh, a few of us got together, and I decided to write to uh, to underrepresented minority alumni, and to others that value diversity in our institution in our medical college and to ask them to donate money for the uh, recruitment and academic support for students. And as it turned out, I think the administration kind of uh, recognized that at that point that they really needed to step up at that point and they actually began to support that, hired a minority recruiter and uh, and started a tutoring program, and in that way, in a, within a couple of years, we were able to then transfer that money into an endowment uh -huh. in the Medical Alumni Foundation, and uh, begin to give out a scholarship, uh, and that's how that started. And every year, I write a letter to this group of uh, alumni and others, and ask for them to support this endowment, which has you know grown to, you know, now over $150,000. And of that, we can, uh, by our, you know, the guidelines for the Medical Alumni Association can give out somewhere between 3 and 5% of okay. the uh, principal. Very nice, very nice. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. We're talking with Dr. Bruce Simmons and second-year medical student James Osei Sarpong about the Sarah Logan Frazier Scholarship. Um, and if you could just tell us uh, how, who's eligible for the scholarship and what sort of qualities do you look in, for in the person that's going to receive the scholarship? Yeah, each year we actually ask for nominations from faculty and administrators. Okay. And they send in uh, their recommendations, the, the names. And, you know, on that, uh, on that form... We say that the gen it's a genuine desire to provide uh, the the recipient must have a genuine desire to provide service to the medically underserved. Strong candidates for this award should have demonstrated leadership qualities and a willingness to give of themselves through volunteer work or other efforts that make a positive impact on the life of others. Okay, and you know that you know so. People like James have already demonstrated that willingness and already have stated a willingness to continue that through their medical career. Sure. Well, James, as the chosen recipient this year, you obviously embody some of the traits of Sarah Logan Frazier. 
Um, did you know about her before you came to Upstate, or how did you learn about her? So originally when I first came to Upstate, I knew a little bit of her. I would always see her quote um, on the wall of Weisscotton, uh -huh. and I would always see her picture as well. Mm -hmm. And so I kind of, it was always just that moment walking down the hallway, just trying to figure out, like, who is this individual? So I tried to do a little bit of research in terms of who she was, and I, I realized that we had, a, we had a couple things that we really agreed upon in terms of the determination going into medicine and even be able to want to have that um, skill, that ability to not be in a situation where um, you're not able to help. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of the community, the thing about it is that when you come to medical school, you learn a lot of, of the knowledge base and then even some of the skills in order to help people. But it's interesting that even with community service, community service takes a little a bit of a different route in that it requires more of your um, creativity in terms of um, right. what you feel you're passionate in and as well as how are you going to able to translate that to an impact in someone's life. So I think both um, components were, were something that I wanted to embody for the rest of my career. So you're two years in, but what's, it, what's medical school been like so far? I would say the biggest word to describe um, my medical school experience has been is an adjustment. Um, it feels like going from undergrad and then going into you know the work field and then coming back to medical school is, is always an adjustment that you have to make. You have to be adjusted to studying a lot more than, than you would be normally used to. You have to adjust to the different people around because everyone, I guess, is a rock star in terms <laughs> of uh, their academics. And then in the most part, you have to deal with the different personalities as well. Um, so the thing coming in is that, you know, I instantly saw that, okay, being, you know, uh, you know, a minority or being an individual who's a, um, a black male, you, you see that, okay, that upstate is, is really trying, um, to make that impact, um, in terms of with our class in terms each, the next class before me is, is a, it's a lot of, you see a, a bigger difference, but for me is, is kind of maneuvering through that as well, being that, um, you will have to face some of those um, different things. Maybe people don't understand um, where your culture comes from or, or who you are. And so sometimes people can misspeak or, or come with a, a particular comments that you may not know how to adjust with. Um, part of it, part of that experience comes into that, um, that medical school experience as well. Um, and it comes like that in, you know, in anywhere you go. So the biggest thing as well as that I'm learning is, is professionalism. Oh, uh, sure, sure. You know. Now I know it's early, but do you have any idea of what you, what you want to go into in medicine? What type of doctor you want to be? You know, it's funny. I'm I'm still trying to figure it out. Um, I know that for me, it's either going to be medicine or surgery, and the, that's the <laughs> and those are the two things that I'm really thinking about now. It's kind of hard to really determine um, because I haven't really been um, immersed in all right. into the that's the still real to come. exactly, and that <laughs> that's going to come next year. So. If I end up back here, I'll probably tell you <laughs> what decision will be. Well, I want to thank both of you for making time to do this interview. Yeah. Um, we've been talking with Dr. Bruce Simmons, one of the physicians who made the Sarah Logan Fraser Scholarship possible, and with James Osei Sarpong, a second-year medical student who's the recipient of that scholarship this year. I'm Amber Smith, and this is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection.
Skinny Atlas poet Pam Freeman is this year's winner of the B.A. St. Andrews Award, given to a poem that evokes the exquisite observation and subtle wit that characterized Bonnie's poetry. Pam's poem, Triptych, celebrates aging without sugarcoating its hardships. Triptych, 65, 75, 85, by Pam Freeman. 65, Old Naked Woman. An old naked woman sometimes shows up uninvited in my bathroom mirror, late in the evening when I've been reading over Merlot and potato chips. And now it's bedtime, brushing teeth, nightgown waits on the door hook. But there she is, looking vaguely like a relative distant in time, hometown, kind highs. No one close, certainly, yet she insists on skinny dipping in the tub. So I fill it with scented bubbles and in we go. Any wine left, she says. I dutifully drip to the kitchen to pour a glass for her. Soon she's tipsy and gabbling on about men from the past and girls and moments, embarrassing to me, hilarious to her. She won't quit, and finally I give up and giggle too. And then we're off, yelling power ballads and party anthems, swapping lies, then secrets. Then in the cooling bathwater, truth. I know one of these days she won't leave. She'll stick around like she owns the place and me with it, and I'll have to let her. 75, Old Wives' Tale. Why do we say Old Wives' Tale? Old wives are the bravest. Their husbands' hearts crash and burn, leaving them to pack up the closet, breathe the familiar smells, goodbye, donate the golf clubs, live with half the toaster unscorched, half the bed smooth, leaving them to stare at the oil spot on the blank space in the garage like a map tack on a glacier, which in turn is barely a hopscotch square on a sidewalk, marbled like Sunday china under a plaid whirling uniform skirt compared to the borderland where their man has disappeared, leaving them to rudder through crosswinds of memory, leaving time congealed and tomorrow an unmarked glide path. It's our own dark unease pointing away from its shame to call every silly myth an old wives' tale. We can't bear to witness old wives' truth. 85. Old Heart Fading If I had a bike, I'd ride you on the bars, back to that not-yet instant when God knocked the arrow of eternity, held her breath, let it fly, hit the switch to light the stars. If I had shining eyes, I'd be the mirror you deserve. But even with these milky, drooping cataracts, you are a miracle I notice every day. I trace your contours, color every curve. If I were truly good, I'd earn a place to shout forever in the company of saints. Joke's on them. I'd sooner sail the skies with you. Two pirate galaxies a-spin in spiraling, uncharted space. Be my valentine, be mine. This old heart's fading, like the one you made so long ago. Names in crayon side by side, pasted out of paper, lace and twine. But it still rings as strong and true as all the love that you define. However much the time we have, however much our time.
Thank you for listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. If you missed any of today's show, listen on demand on our website at healthlinkonair.org or find a podcast in iTunes by searching for one word, HealthLink. I'm Amber Smith. Thanks for listening.